joy it is uh, always to be able to come to worship God and also to ch- see children in our midst. You know, uh, we have membership renewal every 10 years, okay? But this time, we actually brought forward a bit. This is our eighth year. And uh, we wanted, because it's after COVID, we wanted to sort of check who is still with us uh, and who is not. Now, why is membership important? See, when we first become a Christian, we are truly born again, baptized by the Spirit, we enter into this body called the church. Because this is the invisible church. And then there's a visible local church, which is us, right? Every local community. Um, But what do we do when we gather here? Every Sunday we gather, what what are you doing? We're not just listening to somebody talk or singing songs. Every week we gather in our DG, what's the purpose? It's not just simply sharing about our lives. Every time we gather as a body of Christ, we are presenting ourselves to God. And I believe there's a sanctifying effect of gathering. Um, as we gather together, we come together as a covenant community. What that means is we come together to say that we are committed to each other to follow Christ. means there's a mutual, there's a mutual sense of responsibility and accountability. Okay, and that is why we need membership to know who is part of this group, who are the ones that say we are committed to one another. And so, remember, uh, if you... Uh, a member, please remember to renew. If you forget and you're dropped, then next time when you want to join membership, you have to go through all your course again. Uh, anyway, um, so do remember to renew. You know, this whole year, our, our theme is on outreach. And outreach is driven by the love of God. So we spent a year trying to define what is love, right? The greatest love story ever thro- told from creation to Christ. We see love, love is as how God unfolded His redemptive plan. And then uh, in July, we look at 1 John to see that God is love. And I hope by now you know love is a verb, verb, love is an action, love is a choice. Love is helping those in need. So in August, we are going to see what love is not. Sometimes people say, well, love is love. Is it? So in this series, we are going to talk about what it says, the Bible says about homosexuality. And if you look at the Bible, there are very few references to this issue. Maybe two or three in the Old Testament, about three in the New Testament. Uh, and so in this series, we'll try to cover all these different Bible verses. Why is it not frequently mentioned? See, the Old Testament and also the Gospels are mainly to the Jews. And so to the Jews, this issue they are, is very clear to them. It's wrong. So there's not much to talk about. Then we come to the New Testament epistles. The three times it's mentioned, it's all mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, and Romans. To the Greeks, it is something very common. And so what does Paul uh, tell his readers about this issue? Then the last week, uh, we have invited a special speaker, uh, Pastor David Tochen, who himself uh, used to lead the gay lifestyle. Okay, and uh, he came out of it and is now a pastor, so I invited him to come here to share how can we make our church a safer place for people with same-sex attraction. Today we'll look at our first, which is on Romans chapter 1, to be not ashamed of the gospel. So let's pray as we begin. Holy Spirit, I pray you give us the faith to not be ashamed of the gospel, that we will see Christ lifted up in our lives, and Father, you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when Caleb was a teenager, he decided to come out to his parents. So with much fear and trembling, He told his parents that, you know, I've 
realized this new identity inside of me, and I've come to accept that is the real me. And of course, his parents responded with great disappointment and anger. They accused him of uh, betraying everything they stood for. Caleb's coming out story is very similar to other coming out stories we have heard, except he was coming out as a Christian to his gay parents. See, when he was three years old, his parents got a divorce. Both of them came out of the closet and went to live with their gay partners. His parents were actually professors in universities. And so they were activists in the LGBT movement. In fact, they pioneered some of the movement in the 90s. So Caleb grew up in such an environment. He said, I grew up going to gay parties, uh, gay clubs, marching in gay parades. Once, I saw this group of people while we were marching, holding up banners that said, God hates gays. And they sprayed water and urine at us. So I asked my mother, who are these people? And she said, these are Christians. Because Christians hate gays. And so he grew up being antagonistic towards the Christian faith. But then one summer camp, he met a girl, as with every good story. She wrote him a card, and to his disappointment, in the card, she shared the gospel with him. Now, even though he was antagonistic towards the Christian faith, God kept bringing Christians into his life. He said they were different from those I saw at the parades. They had a strong theology grounded in the Word of God, complete with a biblical sexuality that says sex is reserved for marriage and marriage is between one man and one woman. I then joined a dynamic Christian community filled with love and they discipled me in the means of grace. They even taught me to love and respect my parents. He's coming out to his parents to admit that he became a Christian was traumatic. To make things worse, about a week after his conversion, he felt the call to be a preacher of the gospel. And so he says the tension in his heart was skyrocketed because he felt like he lived within in two worlds. One world was the world that he grew up in, that was the LGBT world. The other world was this new world of his Christian faith. You know, Caleb wrote his story in this book called Messy Grace how a pastor with gay parents learned to love others without sacrificing truths. I met Caleb Kaltenberg uh, in my doctorate class. I don't know him very well, but as he shared his story and we asked questions, I was intrigued by this tension that he shared of living in two worlds. Because don't we all feel this tension, right? I mean, as Christians, we are in this world, but not of this world. And so many times the values of the world are in contradiction to what we believe. And if you are not feeling the tension, I'm a bit concerned. You know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to this, this gentleman who is not a Christian. He found out there was a senior pastor of a church and immediately he kept pounding me with questions. So when are you going to set up your own church? How are you going to grow your church? You know, what are you going to do with them? And I was a bit stunned. I didn't know what to, what to say, you know. Then he actually shared, said, oh, he, one of his customers is a, is a church, a, a pastor of a mega church. Every time she comes, it's a whole entourage and they will spend a lot of money. And then by and by, I came to realize it's because we share different worldviews. To him, if you have a, a job, it's naturally you advance, you earn more money. That is why he asked me when I'm going to start my own church and start earning more money, you know. But to me, 
I totally never think of that. My answer to him was probably as bewildering to him, you know, bewildering. Because I said, well, if I wanted to make money, I won't be a pastor. So we feel this tension because we live in two worlds. How do we navigate this tension? You know, I lived in the States for 10 years. And in the 10 years, I sort of experienced the whole process of the uh, legalization of same-sex marriage. Right? From the time of Bush and even Obama's first term, they all said that, you know, marriage is between one man, one woman. After Obama's second term, and you know, presidents there, they only have two terms. After the second term, no more. Immediately, he flipped and said that marriage is between, well, can be anybody. Meaning he's no longer going to defend uh, the traditional definition of marriage. What happened then, I think it's quite similar to what we observe now in Singapore. First, it's always the media, right? Every time you watch in a TV series or movie, there's a gay person, he or she is always compassionate, humorous, loving. If there's a religious person, especially a pastor, it's always angry, hypocritical. You know Joe Biden, at the time he was just VP, he said even though he was a lifelong Catholic, his view of homosexuality changed because of this series he watched called Will and Grace. What is Will and Grace? Or well, if you don't know, you don't know. If you know, it was a popular uh, series about this gay couple, a comedy. I watch it too, you know. So this is how movies influence us. Then comes the changes in policy, in schools, in our workplaces, where not only do you tolerate or accept same-sex marriage, but we are to celebrate. When we look at Singapore's history, there are two significant uh, moments in the LGBT movement. First, in, this, in the 90s, when SM Lee at the time said something. And then in 2002, PM Go said something. Essentially, they said, let this issue evolve. And slowly, people will realize they are born this way and we will accept them. And after those two speeches, there's a noticeable increase in LGBT activism. Then today, of course, we have the Pink Dot Movement, uh, what happened 377A. No, I'm not here to give you an analysis of what, happen what is happening in the LGBT movement. I'm here to share what Scripture says of this issue and what is the position we take. Especially remember, beginning of this year, we issued the pastoral guidance towards the issue of LGBT. So we'll unpack some of it. I hope you already have it. If not, uh, I'll find some way to get it to you. Okay, maybe next week. I'll put it up there. Um, so I hope as we come together, we come with an open mind uh, about what Scripture says. Romans 1 is really the first incidence uh, that's mentioned uh, in the New Testament. Paul after tells us in Romans 1, first the reason for our issues or the root of the issue. Secondly, the results and then finally our response. Okay, So the reason, the results, the response. And he says our human problem, really the reason or the root is because we turn from God to idolatry. Um, he says, I, don't want, I want to come to Rome to share the gospel with you. I'm under obligation to the Greeks and barbarians. To do my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Then he mentions, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, and this is really the introduction to the whole book of Romans. Next year, FYI, we are going to study this book okay, in detail. So we sort of will get a better grip of what he's saying. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, then in verse 18, he goes on to this first section to talk about sin. He talks about the righteousness of God in verse 17. And then verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God. It contrasts with the righteousness of God. So this is where we begin. <clears throat> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth 
in our righteousness. <clears throat> See, people suppress the truth of God. How do we suppress? Why do we suppress? It says because that which is known about God is evident within them. It's clear who God is. Why? For God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. means people know who God is, the attributes of God, but we suppress it. How do we do that? You know, when I first went to the Grand Canyon, I was standing at the cliff and I just saw the whole canyon in front of me and I was awed. I felt so tiny, you know, and there's someone greater than me and this instinct, this response to worship God. Now, if I were a materialist, I didn't believe in God, I would say, well, this is just a result of wind and air uh, and water erosion, you know. What's there to worship? That's how we suppress how we feel God and know God. When we look at people with special needs of the poor being abused, being taken advantage of, we feel that it's unfair, right? We feel indignant, we feel angry. But if I tell myself, well, look at the world of nature. It's the survival of the fittest, right? The fittest survive and hence the weak would not. So why should I feel that it's unfair? It's not. That's how we suppress God's revelation in our lives. When we look at the issue of love, last week I talked about love, right? Since when we look at world systems, if we're atheistic or materialistic, don't believe in God, what is love? Atheistic philosopher say, says love is absurd because it's merely uh, side effects of chemical reactions. And we, don't, we, we will die one day, so why you love so much? So they call this the absurdity of love. And polytheistic uh, faith, God is like human beings, inconsistent. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes angry, sometimes loving. So they coined it, love is inconsistent. But then when it comes to monotheism, right, one God, we believe God is love. So love is absurd, love is inconsistent, God is love. And I also said, true love means there must be an object of love. I love someone else. Own self, love, own self is not true love, right? And so if there's only one God, then before creation, God is not love. Because He has no one to love. But in the Christian faith, we believe in the Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There was already an object of love. There was true love. And as God is pre-existent, love is pre-existent. And hence we say God is love. Now why do I say all this? <clears throat> you know Nietzsche, the atheistic philosopher, he said, if you look at your baby in the crib and you feel so much love, the baby is sleeping the most loving, of course, when they're awake, it's a different thing. Huh? Then you must remember to whisper into the ear of the baby, Tomorrow you will die. So why do I love so much? <laughs> so morbid. But he is consistent to his worldview. And so when we feel love and we suppress this love, say, ah, don't feel so much because love is short term, we are suppressing God's revelation to us. Now I'm not saying people who don't know God are not loving, are not fair, are not kind people. It's, I, I think it's the other way around. They are loving and kind, but except do they have a worldview that is consistent to their behaviour and choices. That's what I'm saying. Paul says here in Romans that people, God has very revealed His attributes in our hearts, but we suppress it. It's clear, but we choose not to know. But it's clear, therefore there's no excuse. Verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks, 
but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men, of birds, of four-footed animals, of crawling creatures. He says the root of the problem is we have worshipped idols, we exchange God for all these things. And as a result, verse 23, he says, yeah, because of this, they, are, they, they think they're wise. These Greek philosophers think they're wise, but they're fools. The key issue, the root, is that we have turned from God to worship idols. And last week, that's how we ended off, right? The whole book of 1 John, we said, the end, John said, don't worship idols. The whole issue is idolatry. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they're symbolic of who God is. Number one is, you should have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. And then comes the others, you know, obey your parents, don't commit adultery, don't kill. Which means that if all the others we fail, it's because we failed in the first commandment of idolatry. Idolatry is disordered love, that we love something more than God. We put something in the place of God. Hence, A.N. Wilson, who was a well-known critic of the Christian faith, but late in life he became a Christian. He said, dethroning God, that generation, referring after the war, found it impossible to leave the sanctuary empty. They put man in his place, which has a paradoxical effect not of elevating human nature, but of demeaning it to depths of cruelty, depravity, and stupidity unparalleled in human history. He was referring to those communist countries after removing God and put man in the place of God. Instead of elevating humanity, we actually depress it. The cruelty, the things they did was unparalleled. The root of human problem is idolatry. And you know, we cannot help but worship something. We either worship God, worship self, worship our children, worship our job, worship accolades. We worship something because we are created to worship. That is why Darcy Stinker, who is a well-known novelist, in a memoir titled Easter Everywhere, she shared about how she grew up in a Christian home. Her, pa her father was a pastor. She said she moved to New York City and she lost her faith. She led a life of sexual obsession. She became famous, of course, she wrote novels. But in the same time, she says, I was filled with uh, restlessness and unfulfillment. Then somewhere in the book, she quoted Simone Well, who was an agnostic philosopher who also later became more spiritual. Simone said, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. If you really think about life, and all these philosophers, probably it is their job to think about life, right? They think more than we ask. Lah. They say, if you really think about it, we only have one choice. Either we worship God or we worship something else. If one denies God, one is worshipping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such. But in fact, though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. He means if we don't worship God, we worship something else. You think it's just a job. You think it's just accolades. You think it's just the desire to get married or have children. But he says, actually, we are imagining attributes of divinity in them, meaning they become gods. They become idols. So we ask ourselves, like what we asked last week, what are the idols in our lives that we have put in the place of God? That you tell myself, I must have that to feel good, to be happy, to be fulfilled. The root of a human problem is idolatry. And the solution is turning back to the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. 
Now the results in verse 24 onwards is that God abandoned us to depravity. From 24 to 32, there are three times He says God gave us over. Okay? The first one, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonoured among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It says, because of idolatry, verse 25, God gave them over. To what? To lust and impurity. Alright? This refers to fornication and idolatry. Okay? Meaning, you have sex outside of marriage and you have sex before you get married. Referring to heterosexual sexual problems. Why did Paul talk about this? You know, at that time, in the Roman time, Marriage at that point was a detestable necessity. They only got married to have children, to inherit uh, their wealth, and to make their family stronger. If you want love, sex, pleasure, companionship, you look for it outside of marriage, to prostitutes, to slaves, and to other people. Okay, that's why marriages were very short. You married for a while, you see someone else better, I marry because I need what you can give me. And things got so bad because when the marriage is shaky, the family is shaky, the family is shaky, the society disintegrates. 18 BC, Caesar Augustus, he enacted this law, Lex Julia, the law of Julius Caesar of referring to adultery. Basically, he outlawed illicit sex and adultery. But it didn't help, you know. Because those rich women, they will put their names down uh, in the city's uh, prostitution register. Because if they register themselves as a prostitute, it's legal to have sex outside of marriage. And why only women? Because, of course, the law at that time didn't really apply to the men. So sometimes we look at the Roman times and think, wow, they are so powerful, you know, the greatest military force of, at that time. But do we really want to be like them? The whole culture of immorality. And so, Paul says, next, for this reason, God gave them over the second time he used to their degrading passions. Earlier, he talked about the heterosexual problems. Now, he says, for their women, what is this degrading passions? Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandon the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons and due penalty of their error. He's now referring to homosexual sexual problems. Now, there are some churches, okay, that says that actually if you are in a homosexual relationship that is monogamous and loving, it is actually acceptable in the Bible. Of course, we don't agree with that, but why do they say that? How do they look at a verse like in Romans 1? Okay, so there are a few verse, versions of the argument. The first is that they say Paul is not describing true homosexuals, but heterosexuals who exchange their natural relations. Meaning, I'm heterosexual, but I act out like homosexual acts. So the real sin here is changing what is natural to the individual and not referring to gay, loving, and monogamous relationship. Now you'll see this is very common, gay, loving, monogamous, because that's the argument. If you're gay, you're loving, and monogamous is acceptable. But when we look at Scripture, the word that Paul used emphasizes biology. There's, he's not talking about sexual orientation. In fact, the concept of sexual orientation was foreign to that time. The modern people came up with it. To them, there's no such thing as orientation, only acts, what you choose to do. So the verse does not speak of natural and unnatural feelings, 
but natural and unnatural function. Second argument, Scripture describes people who are idolatry, idolatrous, not gay Christians who worship the true God. Meaning if you're worshipping God, Jesus, when you're gay, it's okay. Because the text is talking about idolatry, which is true. The text talks about idolatry, but the result is that because of idolatry, first, there's heterosexual sins, now there's homosexual sins. He doesn't just def- uh, limit his argument to those who are idolatrous. Third, he says Paul is describing pedophilic homosexual relationships, not monogamous, loving, gay relationships, which is, uh, has some, um, some truth in it because in Rome, pedophilia was widespread and acceptable. Right? Nero, you know, who burned Rome and blamed the Christians, he usually kept two boys beside him, Sporus, who he, whom he castrated to be his wife, and Pythagoras, who is his husband. His successor, Commodus, had 300 concubines and 300 boys, 300 boys, to fulfill his sexual desires. So when we look at this scripture again, if Paul was just talking about pedophilia, then there was a term for it, but he didn't use that term. He just uses general term and he defines it as men on men. He could have said boys on, on men, men on boys, or used a specific term for pedophilia, but he did not. So while it's true, pedophilic homosexual relationship was widespread, but Paul was not limiting to just this. So instead of going through some hermeneutical gymnastics, which means to try to squeeze out some meaning from the text that is not there, I think the easiest way is to understand it literally. Just read it. Hence, there's a historian who said, (coughs) the Romans were masters of the world. Ironically, they were incapable of mastering their sexual lusts and passion. Their religious beliefs imposed no constraints on sexual pleasures, whether it was adultery within marriage, fornication before marriage, homosexuality, child molestation, or bestiality with animals. So we really want to go back to Roman times? We really want to be like them? Do you know what kind of world they lived in? The third, give over, verse 28, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So, to do those things which are not proper, what? Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, 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 gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Without understanding, I'm trying to look for somebody. <laughs> untrustworthy, I'm looking for you. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Not only do they do it, they encourage others to do it. Now, some people will say, you know, Christianity, we like to pick on sins. We only pick on the homosexuals. How about the others? Well, look, look right here. Did Paul live for others? No. Right? The three depravities. First, heterosexual issues. Second, homosexual issues. Third, all the other issues. Someone once asked, <clears throat> if two people come into church, one is gay, uh, one is heterosexual, but rich and abuses uh, poor people, how would we respond? And they will say, well, we will tend to reject the gay person, but this other one we will accept. Is that true? 
You read our guidance that we printed for you or we gave out to you. Who is allowed to come to worship with us? Who do we welcome? Everyone. If you're a murderer, you're a pedophilia, you're a adulterer, you're welcome to worship here. It's not that just because some sinful people come into our midst, oh yeah, make us less holy so we cannot worship God. That's not what Scripture says. We all are welcome. But who are welcome into membership, into baptism, into ministry? It says if you are repentant. Meaning if the gay person comes and says, I know that's a sin and I'm struggling. It means I'm not perfect. I'm still sinning. And maybe sometimes I'm falling into those relationships. If the rich person comes and says, you know, I know I recognize that I'm sinful in my pride. I've been abusing my power, but I'm struggling. Now, these people we accept. Why? Because all of us, friends, are like that. We, we struggle with all kinds of sins. Not, but yet, because of the gospel, we are accepted. And so, if the key is acknowledging and being repentant. Of course, not just say, la, we really are repentant. We trust Holy Spirit to lead us into victory. And that is why we are called a covenant community. Okay, not a contract. I'm not be your friend, 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 because I like you, because you're like me, because you have common interests, but I'm committed, covenanted to journey with you, just as you're committed to covenanted to journey with me. When we sin, when we fall, there's accountability. There's mutual admonishment, mutual encouragement. That is what the church is about. And so as we look at these three depravities, the result of idolatry is we're abandoned to depravity. And we understand living in this culture, how do we get to where we are today? Because we say we want to stand for truth, it's very difficult, right? You have to, there's a price to pay, what will others people look at me? Will I be cancelled by my friends? First, we must understand, the culture believes that sex is for, not for procreation, but for recreation, just for enjoyment. And hence, marriage is not a lifelong covenant for procreation, but a romantic contract for recreation, which means you don't need men or women. I don't care as long as I have the feelings for you. In our culture today, we focus on the real you deep inside, not on your biological sex or DNA, how you feel, who you are. So it may be different from your body. And since we believe the body is accidental, hence it's incidental. We're not here by design. There's no purpose. God didn't create us. We are here by a biological accident. And because it's an accident, I'm boy or girl is only incidental. What's important is how I feel inside. Hence, sex change is not a problem. No, but when we turn to Scripture, of course, Scripture says a different thing. God defines what love is. God has a purpose for us. We are not here by an accident. But, to be biblically convinced is different from being emotionally convicted. Most of us here, if you are Christians, more or less you can agree with what I just said. But when the situation arises, we say, but this person is my friend. But this person is very poor thing. We are compassionate. And we should be compassionate. How do we go from biblically convinced and emotionally unconvicted to be aligned, biblically convinced, emotionally convinced? That is to Go back to the gospel. And that is why right from the beginning of Romans, Paul said this. We'll go back to the verse we skipped over. To be not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? Let me read first. For it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jews, to the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Two reasons, four and four. The first, let's define the gospel. What's the gospel? That we are loved and accepted by God, not because of whom or we choose to have sex with or not have sex with. Not because we are moral people, not because we do good deeds, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Paul says that Christ came and died for us. He was buried for three days and He rose again in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says this is the gospel. That you and I have been accepted by God, reconciled to God because of the work Jesus did on the cross, in His tomb, and in His ascension. And because we are accepted, we are freed. We are freed from the expectation of the world. We are freed from how the world views us. And as a result, he says, I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I believe it's the power to save everyone. Sinners of all kinds. So no matter what, when we say we're not ashamed of the gospel, it means no matter what happens, we always have hope. We believe God can save, God can change, God can redeem. Second reason, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's righteousness revealed. That shows us the righteousness of God and that we can become righteous because of Jesus. How do we see that? By faith. It's revealed from faith to faith as it's written, the righteous man shall live by faith. By faith, I be- I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I believe in this situation, God can save, God can work. There's always a second chance. I am righteous because of Christ. By faith. And so, when we ever, we believe and God says no to something, He's always saying yes to something better. Because if you think about it, someone with same-sex attraction, we are saying that you cannot have this relationship. You have the feeling but cannot have a relationship. Just as all of us have different struggles, right? I mean, as a man, before my conversion, of course, I see a woman, anything that moves that looks like a woman, I'm interested. But, but does it mean I act it out? No. Right? So all of us, when we become Christians, the one thing we realize is I don't belong to myself anymore. The Lordship of Christ. That I have a, a, lot, a new lot in my life. I'm accountable to Him. And hence, everything we do, we go to Him. Now, whether we make the right choices is a separate issue. But this whole idea that I do not belong to myself, and hence, you know, to this person with same-sex attraction, we, we think it is, it is difficult to be single. You never experience sex, romance, uh, marriage, love. It's difficult. And it is. But we must remember, God gives us His law not to restrict us, but to give us freedom. When He says no to something, it's to yes to something better. No, to be unequally yoked so that we can have a more aligned relationship in the future, freedom in the marriage. No, to taking money that don't belong to you so that later you won't be afraid of CEPIB coming chasing after you. Right? No, to transgressing certain boundaries so that you can experience fullness in your family life and not be destroyed. God insists on certain things not to restrict us but to give us freedom to say yes to something better. And so when we look at Jesus, He's the most complete person. Never got married, never had sex, never had romance. But He was fulfilled. What this shows is, yes, we, if we insist that somebody, to like a, a person with same-sex attraction to lead a single lifestyle without sex, romance and love, we say it's difficult. But you realise it's the same demand on heterosexual single, right? If you're single, well, it means I, I have no sex, no love, no romance, no, no family. That's the same demand. And then in marriage, it's the same. You think after you get married, you have no more problems with sex? Ha <laughs> ha. 
it's the same demand of holiness. God is not asking a person with same-sex attraction to convert his orientation or his attraction. But he's demanding holiness just as he's demanding holiness from people uh, who are heterosexual. And so, if the marriage points to the shape of the gospel, of Christ, the relationship between Christ and the church, then singleness points to its sufficiency for this union with Christ is the only marriage we truly need. The only true fulfillment is in Christ. That's what C.S. Lewis says, right? He says, if you have any desire that you cannot fulfill in this world, and actually every desire we cannot fulfill, because you fulfill it, the sense of fulfillment is only momentary, and then you feel what's next. He says, this is to push you to realize that we are not made for this world. Desire of this world, you're hungry, there's food, you're thirsty, there's water, but you have desires that cannot be fulfilled means you're not made for this world because this world cannot fulfill you. Those desires of justice which will never be fulfilled in this world, the desire of all to worship God, desire for everlasting love is to point us to above the sun, to beyond this world, to our Creator in whom we can find ultimate love, fulfillment, justice, peace and joy. That is the gospel. And hence, we are not ashamed of the gospel. You know, uh, Caleb Kaltenberg, he said, as a teenager, when he told his parents he was a Christian, his father grounded him, okay, almost disowned him. His mother, who was not living with him at the time, um, didn't talk to him for months. But he kept telling them, you know, God loves you and accepts you not because of whom you choose to have sex with or not, but because of what Jesus and he introduced them to his Christian friends to let them know that they are different from those they meet on those parades. Once his mother went to a church where he was preaching. And after that, the two elders came up to him and said, you know, if you ever want to preach here again, uh, don't bring anybody like your, your mom here. He said, that was the last time I stepped into that church. And I prayed. I said, God, if ever in the future I have the privilege of leading a church, I pray it will be a church who is a covenant community where people who are broken who are struggling with addiction, struggling with same-sex attraction, struggling with opposite-sex attraction, can come here and find a safe place. Isn't that what we all wish? All of us who are broken, isn't that what we wish, that this is what the church should be? And then it says, if you look at these uh, gay people, no few of them are so extreme like my parents. Most of them are ordinary people who just need a friendship and love. His mother shared with him, he says, Years before her partner died, Vera died, they already stopped having sex. But both of them still feel like they are lesbians because, she said, because this is my people, this is my family, this is my identity. And so Caleb Kaltenberg challenged his church. He says, as a church, can we be that community, be that family, be that covenant community that reaches out to people who are different from us? Eventually, his parents came to his church and they accepted Christ. They became Christians later on. But his other mother, Vera, who raised him, right, his mother's partner, uh, at her dying bed, she still re refused to do it. And she says, you know, Christianity is for weak people. I will step into eternity uncertain. That was a very poignant moment in his book. And he says, you know, our job as Christians, as the church, is not to change people. It's not to change their sexual orientation. It's not to save people. That's the responsibility of Christ. Our responsibility is to live truth and love to be a witness for Christ. See, friends, biblical issues can be quite black and white, even though we have some arguments. But human beings are not black and white. We are grey. 
we are complicated, we have many levels. And hence, we need the truth of God's Word, we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to really show grace and love into the messy lives of people. Not others, but us. And so when people say, you know, if I make this stand, I don't know what my friends will say. I'm afraid there's a price to pay. I think we misunderstand the gospel. I think we misunderstand what love is. Love is not love unless it's defined by God. I think we underestimate the power of God's transformative love. I think we underestimate the power of the gospel that can transform our lives and convict us of God's word. I think we underestimate the presence of the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to not be ashamed of the gospel. So, are you ashamed of the gospel? Let's pray. I'll just give us some time to transact with God as the Lord has spoken to you or there are some issues that you're wrestling with that take this time to respond to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray for faith. Faith to not be ashamed of the gospel as we have experienced how you have transformed our lives, even as broken sinners, how you have filled us with God's love. Holy Spirit, help us to be a true covenant community. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.